We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome back to the sweatiest studio <laughs> probably in the world right now. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's crazy how hot it is today. At least it's not yesterday, which got yeah. to like 41 degrees yeah. uh, Celsius, which was truly awful. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, this studio is like <laughs> underground with no windows and we try not to have the aircon on because of, of the sound and stuff. So That's right. Very sweaty. <laughs> hottest podcast on the planet right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we are really... I'm excited about today's episode. Yeah, it's been in the making for a while, um, yeah. but it can be difficult to get all three of us in a room, I think, sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yes, we have Rory Watts on today yeah. uh, for a conversation for you guys to listen mm. to. Um, he was one of our fellow PhD friends and uh, has managed to successfully complete that degree. Yeah. He's now Dr. Rory Watts. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So we have a bit of a chat with him about that journey. Um, his education journey generally mm-hmm. and how he ended up doing a PhD. And then we spend quite a bit of time grappling with his PhD topic, which is quite a hard one. Yeah, yeah, yeah very difficult. So although uh, it's kind of in the economics field, it's it, it's a bit more broad than that and yeah. tackles some very big questions that, mm. yeah, makes you think. Yeah, <laughs> So, yeah, we, we sort of talk about public health and the public health workforce, mm-hmm. the sorts of training that people have who work in that workforce and also the sorts of people who get trained to be public health professionals and whether they end up doing those sort of jobs. And, yeah, it's obviously a topic that um, I don't think a lot of work has been done on in the past, no. which is why in some senses Roy had a bit of a blank canvas, but in other senses he had to really drill down and be quite clear on his definitions for things, otherwise it would have just gone out of control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you'll you'll hear in this conversation um, kind of Rory's feelings about all of it, uh, which are very, <laughs> very interesting. So yeah. enjoy. Yeah. Uh, we certainly enjoyed this conversation. So uh, have a listen. On you. <laughs> Audiology 101. That's yeah. right. Um, that's a big F. <laughs> oh dear. All right. Well, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Rory Watts to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you're not quite doctor yet, or are you doctor? I now? am doctor. Yeah, yes. yeah. I got the uh, piece of paper in the mail the other day. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank didn't you very much. didn't go to graduation. I don't just... know when it is, and I chose not to go. Okay. okay. Yeah. So All does right. that mean well, you get like conferred sooner then, if you yeah. choose not to? Well, yeah, like, yeah, ostensibly, because yeah, okay. you would get the piece of paper when you, yeah. you know, rocked up there, and I got mine in the mail. So yeah, and it's the date hack. that it's like on the paper, right? That's your. I or suppose is it, so. Or is it when you like get? A, yeah, I don't know how any of this works. So which dis- is alarming, but disappointingly, yeah. you get a PDF of it first, oh. which like it kind of looks <laughs> nice, but not really. Um, yeah, that's kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, this, this doesn't feel like the real thing. Yeah, thought about printing it out yeah. on A4 and, and framing that one instead. <laughs> yes, right, yeah. yeah. So just a bit of context for people listening that may not be in Perth or may not know who, who Rory is. Yep. Um, apart from the fact it's swelteringly hot in Perth at the moment, so it's a bit of a sweat box in here. Mm-hmm. Rory is a colleague of ours who just recently completed his PhD and, and has had it accepted and finalised and now has been had his doctorate conferred. 
Um, and we're going to talk a bit about your PhD today. Mm. Um, but before that, did you just want to give us a bit of background about you and where you've come from and, you know, what you've done in the past? Yeah, very happy to. So, yeah, I'm Rory Watts. I'm a 33-year-old man. I like long walks on the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually don't, Not certainly not in this weather. Um, <laughs> Pronouns? <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, him. Okay. I, uh, yeah, so I was started off in the world of academia as a dropout medical student, not only once but twice. So nice. I started uh, one year and quit very quickly because I just wanted to play video games. Yep. Uh, started a Bachelor of Arts and then stopped doing that, went away for a while, came back, started medicine again, did that for a while, took up arts on the side again, uh, ended up quitting medicine again uh, and then finished the arts, jumped into a – oh, and did a, a degree at the time called a Bachelor of Medical Science, which was kind of a uh, – That'd be like biomed now. Uh, well, it's kind of like an honours year. It's this yeah, one-year okay. research thing. And that got me quite interested in, in research um, and went from there, did a Master of Public Health because – well, partly because I kind of wanted to feel like I'd done something more than just the, the arts, which I was fiddling around in. Uh, and two, everything I looked at, the coursework, I, f- I thought was pretty cool. So I jumped into that, finished that, uh, went into the world of work, which was – luckily for me, I started as an intern – at World Health Organization. I mean, I'd had mm-hmm. other jobs. I worked at a bookstore for eight years, which is nice. a very good job. Yeah, uh, you know, still probably the best job I've ever had. Which yeah. is, you know, not to be diminutive to any of the <laughs> other jobs I've had since. So, are you going back there? I they keep offering it to me. Yeah, and I, uh, <laughs> it's very tempting sometimes. <laughs> considering, you know. yeah, okay. Once you're done with academics, <laughs> then you can go back there. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that'd yeah. be a nice yeah. place to retire. To. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I I ended up working in Switzerland for about a year uh, with WHO. Came back, worked with Deloitte Access Economics for a while. So I was in their health economics and social policy group. So the, the majority of my work has been, I, I, would, I suppose, health economics work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, they kept asking me, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And the the implicit question there is, where do you see yourself within our organisation in five years? Mm-hmm. And my answer was, oh, I quite like teaching and research, uh, so I think I'll, I'll do that. And so they gave me a kind of awkward look and thought, well, why are you here? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. At which point I, I set sail and went back to, to do the PhD. So I started mm-hmm. that in, in 2018 and submitted at the start of this year. Yeah. And I've just been conferred and alongside that have been working with WHO on and off since uh, since getting back in Australia. Yeah. Okay. And that's what you're doing now, isn't it? You're working with WHO. It is, yeah, yeah, I am. I can explain a bit of that if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, on my mind 24-7, unfortunately. <laughs> or yeah. for better or worse, it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, so I, I work mainly now just doing modelling work and for people who aren't aware of what modelling is, it's not the kind of sexy <laughs> Vogue version of it, although, you know, I've had my offers. Although well. we, we should yeah. have a researcher version of that because I think it would be hilarious. I think it would be. Yeah. I've, I've seen the photos, so <laughs> yeah. don't worry. No, you, you know, don't quit your day job. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of mathemat- mathematical modelling. Um, and so the idea is if you have a, a health minister or somebody trying to make a decision, uh, about where to put some money in a health budget, uh, you try and convey an argument one way or another or at least explore arguments using some kind of mathematical basis. So if we scale up cervical cancer vaccinations from 10% to 50% of people in this cohort, what's the impact of that? What's the cost? And in terms of you know, cost effectiveness, some measure of efficiency, you know, how does that compare to other things you could do with that money? So that's kind of the work I'm doing now, but I've become very esoteric and navel-gazing and I'm trying just to build a kind of modelling framework 
upon which we can base a lot of models that we do. So, okay. the, so you're modelling the models. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so so the idea is to be able to kind of on the fly create very arbitrary states. You know, you could create a chessboard if you want and then you just define movements through which, you know, the values move around that that set of states. Mm-hmm. But it has some intuition which is in, in some sense a, a server that it's pointing to, giving it orders on how to distribute these values. Um, and so the reason I would do this is a lot of the work we do is very bespoke. So you can't just have this one very static model that you've developed. You need to be able to adjust it here and there. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's the fun work I do. And then I, I do a lot of country work. So we're working with Kenya at the moment, working with Mozambique, which is also fun. It's just uh, very practical, <laughs> yeah. whereas I kind of like the, uh, okay. the navel-gazing stuff. Yeah. What, what sort of health issues are they looking to address with these models? Uh, this is very much cancer work at the moment. Cancer, okay. Yeah, so the work I've always done with the World Health Organization has been around non-communicable diseases, mm-hmm. so cancer, heart disease, asthma, diabetes, tobacco, etc. Uh, and so I've been, you know, working on cancer models. They're really interested in um, breast cancer in terms of early awareness campaigns mm-hmm. and screening and interested in cervical cancer, in particular vaccination. So it's kind of working out the dynamics of how you would take a policy as it is now and change it in the future and what the impact would be. Yeah. Mm. And are you working on those two because of, like, Australia's <coughs> background with breast cancer and cervical cancer? Because we're, like... Compared to a lot of countries, we're pretty good with those two kinds of cancers. I we think. are. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think you're right. Um, yeah. And we were kind of the, the forerunners in at cervical cancer releases, as far yeah. as I'm aware. And then the screening in breast cancer as well, I think, is pretty Yeah, we're, we've actually got some pretty notable achievements in public health. So yeah. tobacco would be the other one that mm. we've uh, been mm-hmm. very uh, punitive on, but, you know, for, for the yeah. better, you know. It's the perfect yeah. issue for Australia because we are highly regulated and quite yeah. punitive yeah. society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe not as much as America in some ways, but, yes. but yeah. more so in others. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, we're, yeah. we're probably less libertarian than Americans. So yeah. We probably value individual freedom less yeah. you know, mm. in some sense of a collectivist society, yeah. uh, probably far less than a lot of other countries. But we, we're happy to kind of follow the rules. Yeah. And maybe we've seen that in some of the COVID stuff. For for better or worse, most people have, I think have so. stayed locked yeah. down and I th- followed I think, the rules. Yeah, I think a lot of the oxygen gets taken up by the the sort of more minority groups, not not in terms of demographics, but in terms of attitudes, mm. mm-hmm. um, who make the most noise. You know, the protesters and you know the people you know, know. threatening to kill premiers and all that sort of stuff. Yes, yes. But in a, in actual fact, the numbers of those people are quite low here compared yeah. to places like America. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so no, the the work is not necessarily well. In in some ways, it, it is inspired by work which have which has gone before it. Uh, I think it's just shifting demand and shifting mm. kind of, I guess you could call it an Overton window, things that health ministers are, are willing to consider. And I, here's a false narrative, which isn't entirely true, but has some <laughs> grounding in truth, is that at some point, if, if your health minister was a 75-year-old man, the kind of the hot topic would have been prostate cancer mm-hmm. screening. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, you know, maybe through a bit of work about kind of showing the impact of these things, you know, cervical cancer vaccination becomes much more you know, an interesting and viable topic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but more and more so uh, countries or decision makers need to have some kind of dollar figure attached to things. Yep. Um, and there's a, there's a good question about how literal you take that dollar figure and whether it's just a, a branch of rhetoric and you're conveying this argument. Mm. Um, but it's, it's very pertinent, yeah. Mm. Mm. So how do you apply dollar value to things that aren't already with a dollar value? My mistake, yeah. So, so we do... Well, there's an umbrella of things called cost-effective analyses, 
um, one one branch of that is cost benefit analyses, and that that is where you would try and take some kind of intangible thing and put a dollar figure on it. Um, and in that case, I think you know the actuaries at HBF and people like that they use like the value of a statistical life. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to use it. I don't really know, <laughs> you know what it's used for, but, yeah. but that is certainly, and there would be methods to calculate that. But the majority of the work we do would probably fall under the, you know, the retinue of what's called a cost utility analysis, which is you assign a dollar figure to some quality-adjusted life year or a disability-adjusted life year. And what that means is you're trying to measure the difference between two things in terms of you know, does it save lives or does it extend lives? And also, well, if it's extended the life or it's adjusted some part of the life, what's the the disability? You know, what's the actual value of those years lived? If you're living in huge pain, well, is it even worth, you know, one year of life? Is it worth two, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So you, you incorporate some kind of disability component. And the reason that kind of became common is because if you're trying to cost things, say, in the mental health world, if you're trying to make an argument for them, just using lives saved doesn't really capture the whole thing that you're doing because, you know, part of it will be saving lives, but a lot of it is extending lives lived in good quality. I thought it might be a good idea for us to have a chat about your PhD. Yeah, I'll see um, what I can remember about it. Yeah, so <laughs> loosely speaking, it seems to be looking at public health training and then public health employment and the public health workforce. But I guess in order to understand that, we need to know what public health is. That's a very good question. Yeah, yeah. so what's, what, what definition have you used for public <laughs> what, health? What is what public is health? <laughs> I mean, perfect place to discuss it on the meaning of health. Podcast. Yeah, exactly. that's right. The meaning of public health. Well, yeah. Just be careful because you are now discussing what is the meaning of our podcast. That is very so true. Yeah. Careful. Yeah. To yeah. get very meta. That's the way I like to go. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, the, the bad answer for what is public health is, you know, public health is an art and a science about, you know, treating populations rather than individuals. And, and that's, like, okay. kind of true. Right. And, and then a lot of people just kind of give a really cop-out answer, which is just, it's difficult to explain what public health is. And I, I well, that then don't, don't be in that field because <laughs> yeah. that's not a very useful thing for anybody, especially no. if you're trying to ask for money. Yeah. Uh, if you can't explain what you do, then people don't know where to put you or how to give you money. Um, and, and not that money's the whole thing. I'm just in the economist mindset at the moment. Um, yeah. So, so the old idea, so there was a fellow and his name was either Kenneth or Jeffrey Rose, and I forget, mm-hmm. uh, but he was an epidemiologist and a, a doctor, uh, let's say, half a century ago. And he wrote a book called The Strategy of Preventive Medicine. And the idea of that book was people, you know, the way that people treat medicine is they kind of reduce exposures. These exposures cause risks of things. So an exposure might be alcohol. And the risk, if you take too much of it, uh, is that you might get cirrhosis of the liver, you might get various cancers, etc. But the exposure is not just an on-off thing. It's not, I drink, you know, three cartons of beer a day and I'm at risk. It's that I have three beers a day and there's some risk conferred. But the majority of medicine, the way that it's practiced, is by treating the people on the very tail of that distribution, so where the exposure is the highest. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because they're the people who come in with problems. Yep. Uh, we certainly know people, you know, if you've drunk enough, you're going to have some problems, you'll get to the <laughs> ED. 
Uh, and so the idea was, well, if there's a risk conferred at lots of different levels, the most effective thing you can do purely in just this like mathematical calculation is just to shift the whole distribution, you know, rather than clipping off the tail, you know, a very small tail and treating all those people. If you can shift everybody, then then you actually confer a larger larger benefit than if you were just to focus on the tail. Does it make the tail a bit smaller? It is should that, take well. Idea? Well, it won't. It won't adjust the shape of the distribution no. per se. I mm. mean, now we're getting very abstract in, in yeah. how we're referring to it. But it'll it'll just shift it away. Yeah. So it'll shift it away from that large risk. Mm-hmm. So you know, the people who were at ten risk are now at nine risk, and nine at eight, and etc. Okay. etc. Yeah. Uh, and so the way that that manifests, or at least that served as a framework to then consider, well, how do we go about shifting distributions rather than just tackling the people who work th- walk through the door. And now this is a bit of a – this is not a full historical account of where public <laughs> health came from because that's a long time ago and I'm, I'm not very au fait mm-hmm. with it. But, but the idea there was you go, well, how instead of – you know, instead of treating people who come in with lead poisoning, you know, who mm-hmm. clearly have had too much lead in their diet, <laughs> uh, may, maybe, you know – Stop the lead. Yes, yeah, stop the lead. That's right. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should – you know, rather than using lead shots for, you know, weights and fishing or, yeah. you know, painting t- lead soldiers, maybe we should make them out of tin. Mm-hmm. Maybe that rather than having them as, you know, taking the knock out of your petrol, mm. maybe just leave a bit of knock in your petrol mm-hmm. and you have unleaded fuel. So you, you reduce the amount of kind of ambient exposure to these things because even people who've had a very small exposure uh, still have some kind of risk. And, and so with lead, we, we've got very good evidence now that even small ex- – there's no kind of healthy dose of lead – so yeah. get it out of your diet. <laughs> yeah. Stop eating that lead. <laughs> I um, didn't realize that about fuel. I yeah, in yeah, my mind, leaded. I never, I never thought of unleaded yeah. as lack of lead. Yes. it was just a word. Well, that's, that's I, crazy. Yeah, I don't blame you on that. They, yeah. they do use some funny things. There's probably you're probably a generation or two too young, but we used to have lead replacement, yeah, um, which no. was an in between fuel because I had a car that Is used that to right? take leaded fuel. And obviously right. leaded fuel became banned, so they had to come up with a fuel that was similar to leaded mm. fuel but had a different composition without lead in it and it was called lead replacement petrol, LRP. Right? Yeah. There you there go. go. That's going back to, you know, the the late 90s. Showing your age. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was about to yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't recall that Young either, pups over here, yeah. we don't know anything. <laughs> I'd say it's probably got phased out soon after that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and good that it did. Yeah. Um, and so so that's that's one way that people, you can start to begin about to think about what public health is. Mm-hmm. This is rather than thinking about people with a high exposure, you're thinking about exposure in, in general. So yeah. that's one framework. And you used the word prevention there. And I think, is that some, would you say that sort of underpins a lot of public health? Well, I think it does, yeah. And yeah. I think that's maybe where people get tripped up. But, mm. but to go back, there are lots of words that people use to roughly <laughs> describe the same thing. Yep. Global health, public health, population health. We're in the school of population and global health. Yep. And some people would go, oh, well, you're in the school of public health. And we would say, yeah, yeah. pretty much, yeah. you know. Um, th- they're all kind of the same thing, and I'll get in trouble from yeah. academics for saying that. Well, our chair is the chair in public health That's at right. UWA, yes. so there you go. Yeah, and, and, and part of it is a kind of signalling thing. So yeah. people recognise a school of public health or recognise that you've got a master in public health. We don't have a master in population health. And, yep. and part of that is kind of a just a useful signal to send. But the, the idea is that they're kind of teaching the same things. And, and my idea, and this is my like loopy my loopy take on what population health is mm-hmm. and nobody seems to like this definition but you know I've got a captive audience yeah, now yeah. you've got a platform exactly. so spread right. it yeah. we won't cut you off <laughs> so I, I, th- I think the idea with with public health um, 
rather than, you know, not public health, is that it is looking at interventions which affect no one in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't like that because they go, well, my, but my intervention affects mm-hmm. people in particular. Yeah. But but what I mean is the realm of being, you know, having foresight into who you're treating is, is the world of surgery and is the world of kind of criminal law and, and things like that where you've got some very, very close connection with the individual. Mm-hmm. But the idea when we're thinking about public health is that you're setting up interventions or you're doing actions which you don't know in advance exactly who will affect. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea about that is because it shifts distributions. You know, so, th- so they are related to each other. I just think sometimes that the idea of shifting exposures doesn't fully capture what it is because we've yeah. got things like health promotion or one-on-one clinical interventions that are kind of considered public health as well. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is just captured by the fact that lots of people call themselves, you know, involved in public health and and that's, you know, that's a good problem to have, yeah. that it's kind of vague that people want to be involved. I think a real-time kind of recent example where there is a population in mind but not necessarily an individual is they recently rolled out Ernie Dingo Mm. Encouraging our Aboriginal people oh, to yes. get vaccinated, mm-hmm. uh, in in particularly in the regions and the mm. remote areas, and so obviously they don't have sp- like specific individuals, but they have a group of people that they Absolutely. know are at risk of a certain outcome if they don't take preventive measures. Right? Yes, yes, and uh, yeah, that seems to be kind of no. I think that's an a per- example, a yeah. perfect example. Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah. also the difference of like defining your primary, your secondary, and your mm. tertiary interventions, mm. and mm-hmm. I think a lot of those secondary interventions, which are kind of like for people high at risk but not really there yet, um, they're the yeah. ones that kind of go into either population or medical yeah. Yeah. kind of things as well. Yeah. yeah. So it's definitely a distribution. Yes, um, some yeah. distribution yeah. in the background. Yeah. I couldn't tell you what that distribution no, is. No, neither. But, uh, I don't think but, anyone could really no. tell. That's true. I think, yeah, like social determinants seem to play a big part in informing Mm. who you want those messages to kind Mm. of like like as a group, you know, be a target of that, right? Definitely, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And and thinking on the distribution, that that idea, it's one difficulty. It it might explain why public health historically has far less money than medicine Um, is because we we cannot know it. You cannot in some ways mount Mm. enough evidence to convince people that the thing you're doing is useful yeah. mm. uh, because you're not treating the people who are very obviously affected by the thing that you think is the problem. Yeah, And it can be very hard to capture yes. those improvements as well, particularly Absolutely. if they happen in a population you didn't expect. Exactly. Because then it's like it's not part of your, your research. Yes. And it's like it's happening, it's there, but you can't measure yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And, yeah. and so for, for lead, for example, well, you could have spent, all of these, you know, could have had institutes of treating people with lead overdose, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and luckily somebody was able to effectively convey an argument kind of absent of very strong empirical um, evidence saying that all of these risks are, are a problem and we mm-hmm. need to stop it entirely. Um, now, you can have some evidence, obviously, but you don't have a cohort following people mm. who've had, you know, mm. two nanograms of lead. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got the scale off entirely. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> um, there's just no money and no time yeah. in, in mm. a kind of economic sense for those kind of studies to be done. So mm. an evidence-based approach to public health, audit, like by definition, has limitations. Yeah. yeah, okay. And so what's the... Now, now that we've established... I think in a fuzzy way what public health is. <laughs> <laughs> what was this kind of main thesis for your PhD? What was the, the main issue you, you were addressing? Did you go down a theoretical pathway of what, what is public health, pros and cons? Uh, look, to be honest, <laughs> I tried to put it in the, in the thesis and it probably got very reasonably removed yeah. by supervisors at yeah. some point. Yeah. The, the one chief comment I got throughout my 
PhD writing proposal, or I, you know, stages was, Rory, I think you're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here. Uh, Maybe yeah. you don't need to focus on that. Yeah. So that's yeah. uh, um, so the the thesis basically, the basic idea is some people study public health. Easy, great. We yeah. all know that. Yeah. Masters of public health or something yeah. like that. Yep. Yep. Some okay. people work in public health. Yep. Kind of. That's that's a bit more fuzzy, but we, you know, take okay. my word for it. Uh, or we'll treat that as an, as the argument, yeah. and then. How much do those two things overlap? Okay. Because there's nothing that says by law that they need to. And then the, the real question is, ought they to overlap more or less? Mm. So, okay. You know, most of it is it was just very descriptive. It's just here are the people studying it. Here are the people maybe working in it. Here's the demand for the work. You know, is that changing? And then, you know, two paragraphs at the end going, Ought there to be more mm. or okay. ought there to be less, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah. So it was, it was fairly descriptive. It was just doing some base work um, and then, you know, I think at the start we kind of wished we could have done more modelling or some more like normative guidance about mm. we really think there should be this amount. But you get in the weeds with definitions and lack of mm. data and all things. I think that's things. always the case. Yes. I yeah. yeah. I, I mean, know that I could have always done more modelling with mine. Is yes. <laughs> There's always more modelling. There's always more modelling, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Pandora's box. Yeah. So, but So what is deemed to be public health work then? Yeah, I... I I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Let's uh, take it from me. Oh no! Yeah. So, are you, are you sort of podcast like, done? Yeah. Are you sort of looking at the at the public health system and then sort of saying these people fit within this system? Um, obviously, we have a, a fairly socialised health system here. Obviously, you can get private health care if you want, mm. which brings another question as to what is private health. If we have public health, what's That's private health? But <laughs> let's leave that. Um, yeah, so are you, did you sort of take the view that the people who kind of work within that system would lo- loosely be deemed public health professionals? Yeah, uh, we didn't in ours. So we, we took a few approaches to, to thinking about who has these occupations. Um, the first was, you know, one way to cut it up is you just ask people, you go, do you work in public health? Um, I don't like that approach mm-hmm. because <laughs> it, it's, there's just no necessary relationship. Yeah. It, it may be that they all correlate perfectly, that everybody who work, does something to affect nobody in particular yep. uh, ends up knowing that they're doing that. But I don't think that's true. And my, my one annoying argument is last year I think probably the person who, affect, who could have affected public health the most in WA was Clive Palmer. Okay. Mm. And I don't think if you asked him, he would say he's a public health worker or a public health antagonist or anything. No. Actually, just on that, when we when we try and find guests for this podcast, mm. and you know, it's not even meaning of public health; it's just health in general. Um, we well, I've asked some people outside of health, like education and that kind of thing, and they're like, "But I don't belong on a, mm. a podcast about health." It's like, no, you do. Mm. And yeah, so I think mm. there is a lack of awareness about how yeah. certain jobs can influence health of the population. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And and I think another way of thinking uh, about that, you know, how do people's jobs influence health, is a lot of public health, you know, a lot of things that you could say were public health actions are really kind of second order or third mm. order effects. Mm-hmm. So you do one thing and then the downstream effects of that really are the things that modify health for a population. Yeah. Yeah. So it's often not known to the person who's doing them in some ways. You know, okay, Clive Palmer, for yeah. example. Yeah. Yeah. It could be the Minister for Transport yep. or you know, yeah, all exactly. sorts of stuff that have an impact on people's health. Yeah. That's exactly right. And yeah. so, yeah, one, one way is you could just ask people, do you work in public health? And, mm-hmm. and the, the response you get then is you, you find that the group that you've captured 
are a lot of kind of public health nurses, public health doctors, health promotion officers, nutritionists. Yeah. And they're certainly people who work in public mm-hmm. health. But uh, is that the group you're trying to capture? Mm. Sometimes that is, sometimes it's not. So you can get more abstract with it. And there was one kind of uh, research exercise done in the UK about five years ago, which was looking at the public health workforce and the wider public health workforce. And in that, they were kind of looking for people performing you know, actions of public health, and they really considered anybody who's got a paying job or a, you know, even a non-salaried job uh, who could have the chance to affect the health of other people. Mm-hmm. And so, lo and behold, they found almost all of the working population <laughs> uh, in the UK. Yeah, you could literally find, like, some health <laughs> action for yeah. any job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like when I go to my barbershop, which I haven't been for a long time, yeah. it's probably the most beneficial thing I do for my health in, in a week yeah. or in a month. You yeah, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, or gymnasiums or all these things, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's lots of things which can affect health in, you know, in these odd abstract ways. But that's not very useful yeah. um, if you're trying to, you know, draw a circle around <laughs> people yeah. and say this is public health. So one way that we, we looked in a different paper was that we looked for job demand. So I, I just looked at all the jobs on SEEK and the Department of Health and all these other things. Uh, and we just looked through all of them and were pretty agnostic to what, you know, this is the Department of Health or this is a public health job. And just looked, you know, and tried and gauge by the description mm-hmm. whether it felt like it was affecting the health of people okay. um, in some kind of public health way. And that's a lot of just, you know, expert opinion. It's like, oh, that, that's probably right. You've got to start somewhere though, right? You've yeah. got to start yeah. somewhere. Yeah. So that was one approach and we can talk about, you know, the results of that in a second. But the, the other approach was we looked at students of public health and then we looked at where they ended up mm-hmm. and when – so we had this great data set that looked at, you know, the pathways of students and then it asked them, do you think that the work you're in now was well – you were well prepared for that work as a result of the thing you just studied? So some kind of mismatch. Mm-hmm. And they go, absolutely, like I was very well prepared. Yes, very important to absolutely not important. And so you get some kind of gauge. You go, okay, well – I assume they got, you know, educated in public health in some reasonable way and they've ended up in a job and they're reflecting on that and they've said yes, so maybe that's a public health mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. So that's another way. And that way you you don't have to introduce your own opinion into it. In, in some ways there is in the cutoff is how important do you mm-hmm. deem it. Mm-hmm. But you're not saying that's a public health job, that's not a public health job. You're letting people tell you. My question is, why does this matter? <laughs> obviously, obviously, that probably sounds blunt. But no, I think it's a very good question. But, yeah, why does this matter? Why should we care? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. This is also what we should ask every guest. Yes. Like, yeah. Why does your thing matter? What are you doing you? and why on earth does it yeah. matter? Yeah. Speak. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, well, there are some different arguments you can take for why it's important. One is because some people think it's very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't matter who it is. It's just that they tell you that it's important and you, you ought to do the work. Now, that's yeah. a pretty silly argument. Yeah. Um, but that's certainly the real politic of the world. That's what a lot of people do. Of course. Um, the other reason is if you have some reasonable expectation that people who are educated in public health have a better chance on average of you know, re- 
improving health benefits somewhere down the line than a person who's not educated in it. It's a reasonable thing to try and plan for how many of them are there and try and think about how many of them ought there to be. Okay. And if you think that they do better if they're in a job that works in public health, hence why they're being trained in it, and we'll get back to whether that's a good assumption in a second, mm-hmm. then it's a good idea to see if they're actually going into those jobs. If, you, if you're training 3,000 people in public health a year and they're all ending up as baristas, mm. then you think, are we getting good value for money from the kind of Department of Health, you know? And I, I could use this very, you know, well, COVID, you know, clearly illustrates. But it's actually a more difficult question than that because the problem with public health work is that by definition, it's shifting distributions so it scales really well with population. So you don't actually need, you know, if you've got 12,000 people being affected by COVID, you don't need 12,000 people with Masters of Public Health degrees. You, you probably need three, mm-hmm. you, know, or, you know, maybe I'm being, you know, hyperbolic. There. Three with infectious disease yeah. experience yeah. or whatever. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, so it, yeah. it becomes a more difficult question there because you, one of the problems that people have when they advocate for this work is they use benchmarks. They say, well, see, you know, America, they've got this many per 100,000, so we need this many. But I don't understand how that logic works if things scale, you know, you know, have a – they scale better with populations. Yeah, and um, they might not be linear either. No, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So whereas something like nursing does. Yeah, of course. Know, it's very important that you have people to match the amount of people because you're care. seeing people in particular. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, whereas if you're not – so many GPs. A GP can only see so many people a day. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and the, yeah. really the majority of health workers work on that kind of one-to-one or, yep. you know, one-to-n basis, yeah. whereas the scale of a public health person is, you know, O to the N or something like yeah. that. It's it's a very different scale, and so you cannot use the same rhetoric for those health workers for public health, but we do because it's it's a useful thing to do if you're trying to get politicians mm. on your it's side. It's easier as well, yeah. Yes, yes. Mm. But, yeah, there, there's some sense that if you think that they're going to affect health, you should probably know where they're going mm-hmm. in the same way that we know where doctors go and we're worried about it or we know where nurses go mm-hmm. and we're worried about it. Yeah. I mean, just just things that pop into my head <clears throat> is two, two years ago we wouldn't have thought we'd be talking about police being public health workers. Mm. But they actually, a lot of them are, by def- you know, by default, as taking a public health role. You yes. Know? Yeah, police and the army as well. Yeah, yep. which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, and obviously that wasn't something that would have informed your PhD early on, but... No, it, it certainly became a very evident part. Yeah. Um, so uh, we didn't actually do a huge amount of work to do with COVID. One thing that we did do is monitor how jobs changed over time related to COVID. So we had one paper looking at what's the demand for jobs which have been created by and in response to coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot, you you look for coronavirus on seek.com and unfortunately at the start it was just every description said, due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are Uh, no longer hiring. But now, particularly in research, Mm -hmm. there's a there's an exponential mm. growth on yes. um, people needed to look at the data. Yeah, and I've, yeah. I've, I'm sitting on this huge pile of job advertisement data that I haven't done a huge amount with. But yeah. at mm-hmm. the start, we uh, we monitored just who was being asked for during mm-hmm. the pandemic and what they were looking for. And and it kind of confirmed this idea of how these things scale in, in that the overwhelming majority for the... We looked at Australia, UK, Canada... Uh, New Zealand, somebody else, sorry, the other country. Um, and they all just wanted nurses. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because mm-hmm. you need frontline people to deal with what's coming. Yeah. 
And then only slightly later and in very small proportions were they looking for researchers or mm-hmm. people on the policy mm-hmm. side because these are not in the front of people's minds when they're responding to a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. The, there should be some argument that, you know, they should have thought about it beforehand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there, there is work on, you know, pandemic preventiveness and there yeah. had been some a lot of reports come out and unfortunately nobody in the right places had read them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But now we hope that they will. Okay. Yeah. That's good. One of those reports, I believe, being The Simpsons, I think, predicted a, a <laughs> pandemic around this what time. Yeah. Very <laughs> yeah, I think you could probably do a whole PhD on public health memes. Oh, oh yeah. absolutely. You could. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Lo- loosely evidence-based, but... Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so... Now, you obviously went through the, the data. You looked at job advertisements. You looked at, um, I, I think you looked at people's education. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so what did you find, you know, between those two things? Yeah, so so I guess this mainly refers to one study we did, uh, which was similar to the coronavirus one but done before coronavirus, where I just scraped advertisements and we... You know, I was making a judgment call saying that's a public health job, yep. that's not a public health job. Did you have a protocol for that? Uh, a lot of it was expert opinion, my yeah. expert at the time, but <laughs> it was, you know, if we I was on certain... protocol afterwards. Yeah. No, a, a lot of it was just between us and the supervisors. Yeah. So it's probably a good point just to say who was supervising you and their experience because obviously mm. you yes. had a range of experience on your team, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, no, I had a great team. Um, yeah. Dr Ian Lee was my primary supervisor, so he's an economist by trade uh, and just a, a very great person to work mm. under because he's yeah. very eager, he's very meticulous, so you send him something and he sends something you know, back immediately, which was very good for that's the most a, part. Yeah. Sometimes I got a heart attack, how quickly <laughs> you can get things back. And that's something uh, we all share in common is he's mm. well, a supervisor for all of us. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes yeah. indeed. So, yeah. Thanks, Ian. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, had I reserve my judgment, I'm still going. Oh, so. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you have overly sweet things to say about him. <laughs> Uh, I had Professor Colleen Fisher, uh, and she's the head of our schools, the School of Population and Global Health. Uh, And her, well, she had two main roles, and one was, you know, she's the head of a a population health school, so she's got all this kind of real-world knowledge and experience Mm -hmm. about the school and the education part of component. But we're also supposed to do some qualitative work, Mm -hmm. which very unfortunately fell by the wayside Mm -hmm. due to coronavirus and not being able to see people and things like that. Uh, And then the third supervisor was Dr Devin Bowles. And at the time he was, I'm going to mince this, but I believe he was the president for CAFIA, which is the Council of Australasian Public Health Institutes Mm -hmm. of Public Health... uh, uh, What is it? Council of Australian Public Health Institutes Association. Mm-hmm. The two A's are one of them is association, one of them is Australasia. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, he, so he also had a very practical view uh, into a lot of this work mm. and kind of how schools talk to work and how work talk to school and he had a lot of experience in federal government. So it was mm-hmm. a really good mix of people. Yeah, that is good. So if you're getting advice from those people, then I'd say you're on pretty solid ground. Yeah, it was, yeah. I, I yeah, felt yeah. very lucky. I'd, yeah. I'd do it all again the same way. So, yeah. yeah, okay. Mm. And so you, you had this... <clears throat> sort of process for deciding what was public health Yeah, so we had a, a definition which was um, a, a fellow named Ari Rotem who did a lot of public health work in the early 90s in Australia and he had a kind of functional definition about people who perform actions that affect populations. Mm-hmm. But at some point you do need to make a judgment call and yeah. that was just between me and the supervisors mm-hmm. about does this feel public healthy or not? There's <laughs> no real way around it. There's not some quantitative thing you can do to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we looked through various, you know, job repositories and collected all this data over a couple of months. Um, and the main things we looked at were the title because the title conveys a lot of the information mm-hmm. that we found out. 
because we did look at the descriptions. But unfortunately, when you look at descriptions of job advertisements, uh, the the one chief cause of whether it's a long or in-detail description or how many actions that somebody performs, etc., is just uh, the sector that's produced the job description. Mm-hmm. So the state health department will give you, you know, a 40-page document on everything you're going to do, yeah. you know, down to moving pencils from left to right or picking up boxes. And so it, it became less evident that we could get very good information about what did people actually do. A lot of that inference had to be made from kind of what the title was. Mm-hmm. But certainly we got things on the contract and the salary and where it was and all these things and the sector and, you know, these things. And and the idea was let's just see what the demand is. And we had this data from the 90s and saw whether it had changed or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so the, the chief findings was, lo and behold, public health jobs are everywhere, uh, <laughs> you know, it, and, and not ubiquitous, but, that, you know, they're spread out. And there's lots of different things that it seems that public health people do. One thing I, I have to add is that we um, looked at what degrees were they asking for because that's a, mm-hmm. that was useful for us as well. Mm-hmm. So program officers, project officers, you know, research analysts, policy analysts, health economists, biostatistician, lecturer, tutor, uh, you know, people in doing other things in state departments, NGOs, private, you know, so private consultancy looking mm-hmm. for people with masters of public health. And the interesting thing was a lot of people, nobody ever asked for a master of public health. Mm. Some people asked for a public health degree, you know, mm-hmm. quite a few, and that had increased over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing which was interesting is nobody ever said just a public health degree. It's you know it, there are a lot of things which people think are synonymous with public health, right. and they're probably right because I don't know the work that they're doing in particular. Mm-hmm. But it's a set of skills, and those skills can be conferred in other degrees as well, uh, unless it's a very particular kind of biostatistics, mm-hmm. in yeah. which case mm-hmm. you look for biostats, biostats, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and epi sort of stuff. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, th- so that was kind of the findings. The pay was pretty good as well, but okay. it's always the pay that's advertised, so you don't know what's mm. missing, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it's just, well, we'll talk to you when you get the job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it was, yeah. Well, it was like a Bachelor of Health Science or something like that included in that Absolutely. suite of degrees? Yeah. Psychology is okay. usually Absolutely. included okay. as well. Yeah, because like, yeah. yeah, my background's in, in psych with undergrad and what kind of happened there is um, when I was deciding to do become a psychologist or do something else. I was looking at jobs and it's always like either you become a psychologist Mm, mm -hmm. or you go into this suite of things um, which kind of has anything vaguely related to health. Yeah. So, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So And that's that's kind of what you found as well, yeah, which makes sense, yeah. Yeah, that's what we found in Mm. – yeah, it was often like psychology or Mm – or, or nursing or mm-hmm. allied health, you know, sociology students or graduates, et cetera. Yep. So there was that kind of little cluster or it was clusters around mm-hmm. public health and biostatistics, epidemiology. Um, the, and the one thing that had changed a lot in the um, the 10 years since we did the – or the previous analysis had come out is just like a lot of emphasis on data analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think that's unique to public health, but it was certainly included in public health as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting because um, the implication there is that the data are quantitative usually, mm. yeah. whereas I feel like in public health a lot of the time qualitative data are equally as important, particularly mm. for certain issues. 
where maybe not as many of the people in the population have experienced the issue. So it's really important to understand the context mm. around that issue. Um, but I was wondering if that came up at all, whether there was a scope for qualitative um, people. There were a few jobs which kind of implicitly, oh, sorry, explicitly said that we're looking for qualitative research. Yeah, okay. They are often kind of an NGO or mm. part of a Department of Health, mm. uh, but they were few and far between. Yeah, uh, And I think that is kind of the world that we live in at the mm. moment where oh, I'll give you a, a bizarre example. Um, a couple of years ago I was asked to do some health economics work to look at interventions to reduce the incidence of female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the my first question when I was asked to do that was why on earth would you need to do a cost-effective analysis about that? Because surely if if you think this is a problem, you'd just spend any amount of money to reduce it. And they answered, of course, absolutely, we completely agree with you. But people look at dollar signs, you know. And I I think the more kind of um, to step back, it's not that people even look at dollar signs, that people look at numbers and they look at how numbers jiggle and curvy lines and they go, oh, that's important. Um, People, unfortunately, I think some of it is the intention span that people have now Mm. seems to be less. Mm -hmm. Mm. So it's difficult for people to pay attention in some kind of very strong way to what we might call qualitative stuff, which which means there's this marketing problem with qualitative, not that it's less important in any sense. I think, yeah, that sort of highlights where utilitarianism and um, health equity kind of intersect. Sure. And obviously they're quite competing in a lot of ways because, you know, utilitarianism, greatest good for the greatest number. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be this amount of money and that's all we care about is the money. Mm -hmm. But then at the other side, there's certain populations that are at inherent disadvantage, you know, like Indigenous people and people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. But, you know, I think most people would say, yeah, we're, we're happy to spend a little bit more trying to help people yes. who need the help. But then government likes demonising populations sometimes and yeah. saying, you know, we've got a nation of bludgers and all that that's, sort of that's stuff. That's right. But we, and, and it's funny, those arguments only seem to, well, they seem to apply more so in health, these utilitarian arguments. Mm. Yeah. Whereas if you've got... Um, let, well, let's say in Perth recently with the Clio example, there was nobody on Twitter going, oh, what's the cost effectiveness of finding yeah. one girl? Yeah. The answer is we're going to find girl. the damn girl. Yeah. Like yeah. we'll spend any amount of money. And it, those are really important social things to do. Mm. Yeah, and so, the yeah, utilitarianism breaks down there. And yeah. I think you can make this meta-utilitarian argument, yeah. which is kind of like, well, the value of social cohesiveness, yeah. et cetera. And maybe you want right. to make that, but it's... That's right. Yes, there are these conflicts. But there. Bentham was not making those arguments. He was not. No. <laughs> Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you, and now back to the show. I think we've we've sort of we're sort of stumbling towards getting our hands around mm-hmm. this quite big topic. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you um, know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what are you? What I guess loosely speaking, what were your findings or what were your overall kind of impression of? Was there a big overlap between the two no, circles? No, uh, I don't think so. It's it's difficult to answer because if we're thinking about the two circles, one is the people who study public health Mm -hmm. and the other circle is the people who work in public health. We weren't able to circumscribe the people who work in it Mm -hmm. and that's purely like an economic problem. We didn't have the time or the money to go and talk to everybody and think about it for long enough. (laughs) So what we tried to do was infer how big that thing might be by looking at the demand of it. Uh, and, And the answer is 
at the moment, the overlap is quite small. Mm. Um, and I think the historical reasons for that is that public health wasn't necessarily a degree that people went into to get trained for a job, mm. uh, just like a lot of things. There was a, you know, primarily it was, and, and I could be mincing this a bit, but it was senior health officials, mm. it was doctors and nurses, and this is certainly what the old data suggests. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them weren't looking for new jobs. They were looking, you know, to learn these skills for their own job mm-hmm. or to signal to employers that they were going to go up in that job similar to kind of a master of business administration. A lot of that is getting different jobs, but a lot of it is signaling to employers that you want to go to the next part of their employment agency. So historically, there was not a strong reason to train people to do new jobs, but the the world we live in now is a lot of people kind of have that expectation of, of any degree, is that it's employing you very specifically in a vocation, which brings on the problem of well, what, what are all the public health jobs and mm. how do we secure them for you and not for mm. other people. Um, I forgot what the question was. Yeah, so What's I, the overlap? I'll mention that during my oral defence, I, I got nice feedback, but one of it was going to be unnecessarily verbose. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're on the podcast. That's yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. This is the right forum Tendency for you. Tendency Perfect yeah. guest. Although we, there is limited memory on that recording yeah. device. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it uh, fuming. Um, yeah, so, so the overlap wasn't much. Um, and and it, it, there was no suggestion that it had changed much historically. Mm. Um, although I think the demand... So some of the questions or my concerns that came out of it, and I don't know how I feel about them now, was every year we graduate more and more people in public health. That is just, and, and what it looks like is it's just completely a function of graduating more people in health degrees. Yeah. So mm-hmm. every year bachelors of public health increase at about 6%. Every year masters in public health or public health postgraduate degrees increase at about 8%. Mm. And that's really just on track for any health degree. Yeah. It's just the fact that it's a health degree and we've got this aggregate shift in Australia from like a goods economy to a services economy, yep. health is the premium service and therefore anything that's on that tide of health will lift mm-hmm. and there'll be more demand for it. So there's more people wanting to go into it. Uh, and so public health is increasing at that amount. But as I said with the uh, – the, if you're thinking in a purely, you know, definitional way about what public health does, you don't need that many people mm-hmm. um, to do these like purely public health jobs. Right. So then you get this problem of, well, where are these other people going and are they doing things they're happy with? And so that was a big concern of mine the whole time uh, until the last study where we just found that for the moment the majority of people are really well satisfied with public health <laughs> degrees. Um, and I was, I was like kind of let off a big sigh of relief at that mm-hmm. point in time because, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's a concern. Uh, and it seems that the majority of people who go into public health on average have higher, like lower rates of mismatch. So they tend to feel that they've been well prepared for the jobs that they go into. And there's two ways you can kind of think about it is you can look at other jobs that prepare people for that like spread of careers. And there aren't that many that kind of let people go out into the world of private, you know, private and public and NGO, et cetera, in the way that public health do. Mm. And despite that, people still feel well matched. So so it seems like public health's doing something good, unless there's this wild selection bias that just mm-hmm. sucks in really happy, <laughs> affirming people <laughs> and spits them out and they've right. treated them rotten and they go, no, no, it was, it was very <laughs> good. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess from like personal experience, and I think this is where the qualitative would have really helped um, with your project, it's like... 
when I started doing my masters. I, did we start masters around the same time? I did mine in 2014. Showing my age. 15. Ah, oh, there you go. Congratulations. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but a lot of people were just genuinely interested in yes. the information being taught rather than the framework of, like, I'm going to get a specific job out of it. Mm. Um, at least that's the vibe that I got and mm. what I had as well. So I don't know what I'm going to do, so I'll just do this. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I can I, it, the, the comments that... I had from my experience kind of relate to what you're saying and I think, yeah, the qualitative would have really been interesting because you would have been able to look at graduates and actually ask them these questions. Yeah. I, I agree and mm. I, I think that was what we would we would have liked to have done ideally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's a whole lot of economic questions around, you know, you mentioned there that there's a sort of rising tide and so these courses are getting more and more subscribed and mm. more, more graduates and... I think public health-related courses are probably fairly cost-effective to teach because mm. we're not talking about biological samples and la- yep. laboratories and that sort of stuff. And I did a law degree, which is in a similar boat. Um, you know, it's a premium degree in terms of what we pay as students to study it, but to teach it is actually quite cheap because it's just service. People standing in yeah. front and... Yeah. Um, it's just the labour might be more because there are retired judges retired, or something. Yeah, yeah. The, the, they can be slightly more expensive um, as, as far as lecturers but go. you're not dealing with, like... Human bodies or no. samples, or, yeah, yeah, like in science and engineering and, and medicine and these sorts of yeah. degrees. Obviously, the cost is quite high to deliver them from a, a materials point of view. Mm. Um, but yeah, I wonder if that sort of plays into how many graduates are getting, um, you know, churned out through our institutions and mm. like law graduates. It's unbelievable how many mm. people because there's so many universities offering law degrees now. For example, yes, and most people don't end up working as lawyers, and I'm a good example. No, no, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. and. Well, I mean, originally, as far as I'm aware, universities weren't designed as vocational institutions, mm, you know, mm-hmm. and and maybe we're just regressing back to that. Yeah. It became this, although there is still very much this strong emphasis on finding jobs for graduates. Yeah. But, you know, then you get into this whole big argument about what part of university education actually gives people the careers and there's mm. a very strong argument that it's actually what they would call the sheepskin cost. Right. So they they do there are certain studies out there which have followed people from day one of doing their university and then they look at the lifetime earnings of people who dropped out effectively a day before they got the grad they graduated and the day that they graduated and those two things are very different. Mm. So if you're trying to mount an argument that it was what they learnt that got them the money then you'd, you'd fall short because presumably that last day didn't confer all that much education. So the sheepskin is the cost of the, you know, the actual having value the of having the diploma because yeah. they yeah. used to write them on Valum as far as I'm aware, which is sheepskin. Okay. Yeah. But, but you, not, the, the, not PDFs. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They used to use goat skin as well to, yes. to write stuff on too. So yeah. it's uh, – but, I mean, they're, they're very – much bigger questions, which I'm not fluent yeah, yeah. in, you know. But, yeah, um, yeah so certainly uh, always a big part of university has been the signalling component, the fact that you're indicating to employers that you're willing to do something. And and that plays mm. into public health as well, mm. which, you know, it's going, I've got this health degree and I've got these skills. I can't show them to you, but the, the degree itself indicates that I've got some of them. Um, and there are just all-purpose jobs in a lot of places where public health can work. And then mm. there are very specific things which public health people might have an advantage over others about, mm. so epidemiology or bias. Okay. Now, do you have a hypothesis? So you mentioned there that our current um, cohort of public health professionals likely did something else, clinical work or, yep. you know, sort of uh, public service, probably bureaucratic work. 
Um, do you have a hypothesis about that demographic changing now that we do have more and more people who specifically trained in public health coming through? Yeah, I, th- well, I think it's getting much more distributed. So, And I, I don't have the data to back this up particularly, but I, I, my guess, well, I think in the 90s around half or 60% of all the people who were measured to have done you know, masters in public health uh, were from clinical backgrounds, so nurses, mm-hmm. doctors mm-hmm. mainly, and then a few allied health. And I think that proportion has dropped. Okay. Uh, and I believe it's more people coming in from other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, what would drive that, I'm not sure. Um, I think, well, it, you can ask it one of two ways. One is, has the value of it for doctors de- decreased or mm-hmm. has the value for other people increased? Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is for both of those. I, I certainly know things have changed in medicine where to get a you know into a training program, you often need to demonstrate you've got another degree. So a certain subset of people still want to get masters of public health. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, to learn the skills, great, but, but two, also as a very instrumental thing to demonstrate to their employer. Uh, but for other people, I, th- I think it's becoming much more distributed. So you, you often see in classes now, either in undergraduate or, or well, in postgraduate, uh, there's a few nurses, one or two doctors, and then lots of people from biological sciences or people who've done economics or law. Uh, and I, I think things like coronavirus mm-hmm. have increased that interest. Now, there's a there's a risk there because if it's increased interest because they say, I want to help this, mm-hmm. then we sh- should, you know, know where they're going to go and what they're doing. So uh, they can actually help. So they help. can help yeah. them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and not just advertise it on the basis of, of course, public health, public health, therefore. Sense, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. And did you get a sense that, that we currently have a problem that needs addressing or is, is it okay at the moment? It, it's okay at the moment. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think we do a, a good job. And, I, you know, in some ways I was, concern, I was concerned about it. I, I worried that we weren't. Um, but people seem to be going into places that they're happy with. And there's, I, I think there's always a base rate, regardless of what you study, of people who aren't happy with the end result. Right. Uh, it just seems that public health has a smaller proportion of those people. So, mm. so in some ways they're doing a good job. But that doesn't mean that in the future we won't. But I yeah. wonder if the whole thing is correlated with just how many people go to university now mm. expecting mm-hmm. a very, you know, expecting good grades and a very promising career and if 100% of people go to university, then it really doesn't offer any unique marginal value to anybody, yeah. that's, except for that's the education. That's definitely a, a broader question. And very think, much a broader question. affects yeah. internationally as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so whether it's a public health training problem or yeah. whether it's just a university problem, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, I, I know access to certain courses was far more restricted when I mm-hmm. finished high school back mm. in '96. And so I wanted to go into physiotherapy because I played a lot of tennis growing up and yeah. thought sports physio would be a great job. Yep. Wasn't a great student. Um, <laughs> probably had the ability but not the motivation mm. and yep. the ability to concentrate at the time. Mm. <laughs> so I ended up enrolling in psychology, which I never finished yep. because mm. I really that was just like a backstop sort yep. of plan. Um, and then I came back to university later in life. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I couldn't get into physio, whereas today I feel like my chances might be a bit better. Yeah. You know, they, finding... they have, like, fast-track um, mm. things as well that for Year 12 students where you don't even need to get your ATAR and you can be put into a course yeah. just based on 
year 11 grades. Wow. Yeah, so you could totally flunk your ATAR and fail <laughs> yeah. it and still well, get into something like medicine based on your year 11 grades. But yeah. I guess at that point they've, they've picked the cream of the crop already. They've gone, we want you at our university. You'd think so. We're but willing yes. to buy you. you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. But, so, like, mm. but like that was not something that no, was not at all. there when yeah. I was in high school, mm. as I assume, mm. um, for the two of you because I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see how that has changed yeah. over time. yeah. Yes, and it almost seems that there's an increasing expectation that you'll have either a master's or a PhD mm. to be competitive for, for a lot of the jobs that are advertised now. It's not just enough to get a bachelor's yeah. now. You need to get a grad cert and then a, a master's. Or yeah. 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 No, that's absolutely right. It's kind of like standing up at a concert. It's like if one person does it, they get all the benefit. But if everybody does it, well, you're back at square one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that I, that's underselling the value of the education. But at some point, a lot of these things are economic problems. It's how much yeah. time are you willing to spend yeah. training somebody rather mm. than just getting them on the job? Yeah. Is it necessary for the value that mm. they'll create? Yeah. You know, at some point, well, I need a master's degree to work at a bookstore for eight years. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, you have your PhD, which <laughs> means when you retire, you can go back to a bookstore. <laughs> That's very good, yeah. And luckily, I've got a master's and a PhD. That's so right. I'm, I'm highly competitive yeah, compared yeah, to yeah. all you out there. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so do you have undergrad honours, master's and... I do. <laughs> Me too. I I've never met threats. someone that does yeah. all of them. Oh, that's yeah. exciting. The two saddest kids in the room. <laughs> 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 There's a whole lot of research questions we could look at. F- what that. kind of people we are, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Quality of life. decisions, I yes. believe, is a big one, yeah. Yeah, very neurotic. Yeah, yeah. 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 Very personality traits, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very much selection bias. Though. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, really interesting. So I guess we're probably ambling towards the end of our, our conversation. How are we doing for time? It's 10 o'clock. Okay, Beautiful. cool. Yeah, so any sort of key take-home messages, future areas of interest that you might want to explore with future work maybe related to this and building on this? Yeah, so I, I think there's, um, I don't know how much I'm at liberty to speak about it, okay. but, but certainly more work in thinking about the future roles of public health. Yeah. Um, I would, uh, kind of because my work now is mainly modelling and that's what I enjoy doing, um, I'd like to find some way of extending that argument, kind of the value or where the value lies mm-hmm. in having a well-circumscribed, well-thought-out public health workforce and, like, what is that value? And especially in terms of, like, the big thing is uh, preventing effectively pandemics. I think that's where, yep. in, in some utilitarian sense, where a lot of the value comes from because mm-hmm. uh, every time a big pandemic comes around, you know, do, do we just all die? It's like, oh, we should probably <laughs> stop that. Um, so so the key areas where having a well-thought-out public health workforce could, you know, um, and, and the uses of that at a kind of federal government level or state government. So okay. how many people ought they to be training in some very specific way? Yep. So that, that there's some modelling there I'd like to do. Um, but at the moment, yeah, I've, I've got – I didn't mention this before, but I have a very small modelling business called Forecast Health. And so my, my, my goals for the moment are just to grow that business. Mm-hmm. Um, so to keep doing some of the, the country work and the, the non-communicable disease work. Yeah. But eventually I'd, I'd like to kind of expand that. Yeah. yeah. So here's a slightly um, more challenging, I guess, issue. Mm. So say somewhere like Australia, we've got a lot of people graduating with the training to work in public health and to, to help solve some of these problems mm. that we might have with, like pandemics, et cetera. Mm. Other parts of the world maybe don't have that. The education systems aren't as robust as ours. They mm. don't have the funding for it. How could we maybe redistribute some of our trained public health professionals to some of these other regions mm. where the problems are actually... Um, happening that that come back to us, you know, in terms of 
you know, variants for COVID, et cetera? Yes. No, no, I, I think that's a good question. Uh, well, one way is you could just <laughs> decree it by law yeah. uh, that they, <laughs> they have to go somewhere else. Uh, and, and, you know, people, there are structures in other health scenarios that do that, so bonded medical placements. Mm-hmm. You go, young man, you know, you can have a medical degree, but for every year that you train with us, you go into a rural place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, look, you could do something like that. You'd have to have kind of some bilateral agreement with the countries. Um, I think one of the problems is is people people want expect a lot, mm-hmm. so they expect to kind of get out of the get out of their degree and and have some pretty well paid position in in a place where they're used to it. and a lot of that's very fair like that's exactly what I want I was very lucky to get a lot of it um, so I I think one problem with how health expectations and that includes training but also you know how you receive health services is that ex- expectations have changed a lot and i suspect at some point with changing demographics changing population you know the way the economy shifts we will need to start changing those expectations again or at least at an individual level start learning to set expectations differently and whether that means that you, you know, rather than viewing having to go somewhere else and do some meaningful work uh, as an opportunity rather than an inconvenience, that, right. that would be a useful thing. Yeah. But, but I, think, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of um, opportunity there to establish those groups. And as far as I'm aware, people do do that. Mm. Um, it seems to be clogged by very kind of like Ivy League and, and the highfalutin universities at the moment. Right. But I think one of the nice things is that I found that a lot of Australian universities prepare public health students really well comparably internationally. Mm. I got to Switzerland and was very nervous that I was underprepared. Okay. And uh, that soon changed. Okay. Yeah. No, not That's to say anybody's enough. bad, but yeah. uh, we, we do a good job. We do a good job. So if we got sent elsewhere... There'd be a lot of value, I think. Yeah, we'd be yeah. we'd be capable. Yes, as a group. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, is there any final take-home messages or comments you wanted to make before we wrap up? No, I, yeah. I felt we've covered uh, it. You've done a wonderful job. Thank you very much <laughs> for having me. And yeah. thanks very much thanks for, for your time. On. And yeah, it's been great. And uh, maybe we'll revisit this um, topic in in a year or two and see how where things have got to. I'd always be happy to do it. Yeah. yeah. Thank All you right. very much, Craig. Thanks, thanks for Courtney. Thanks. Thank you. And that was our chat with Dr. Rory Watts. Oh boy, <laughs> um, I do. I do like how it started with the what actually is public health, um, and I find it very interesting that we have not done that before on this podcast. I feel yeah. like it was maybe something that we should have done at the start. Possibly, yeah. Um, but it would have maybe been difficult for us to do it. I think so, yeah, because yeah, we've also learned a lot over the past two two years. Yeah, look, a lot of this, almost everything that we've talked about is public health, Yeah, you know, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, a lot of our guests have, you know, the, the health issues that they talk about, whether it's from a consumer perspective or a clinician perspective or a it's researcher all, perspective, yeah. It's all related. It's all related to the health of the population, which is, you know, kind of what we were saying, population mm. health and public health t- tend to overlap as... as um, terms yeah yeah so yes very very um interesting rhetoric about public health and how it relates to jobs and um trends over time and uh, yeah it's a very very broad and big question that rory tried to answer Um, yeah yeah i don't know whether i could have done it (laughs) yeah look i think he's he's done a good job and he's made a good start 
you know, and yeah. reading between the lines, it sounds like he's got quite a bit more planned mm, to mm-hmm. continue with what he started. Yeah. Um, so it'll be really interested to see. But obviously he's got a real interest in the statistical modelling, um, yeah. mathematical modelling um, side of things as well, yep. um, which arguably can have even more of an impact if, if he can develop a model that could be applied to a range of different scenarios with, with a little adjustment. Um, that could be something quite useful across Absolutely. the world. Yeah. yeah, not just in health either, but yeah, yeah, majority yeah. of workplaces. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was. We hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. It yeah, was, it's, it's given me some ideas of where I can go next yeah. uh, in my uh, public health degree. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, um, yeah. So yeah, it's definitely food for thought. And um, if you guys have any feedback, as always, you can contact us at meaningofhealth at outlook dot com or. Courtney via Twitter. Yep. So you can tweet us at uh, mean, uh, health means what? Yes, yep. I, I definitely remember this uh, very well. Um, yes, tweet us at health means what. Uh, we'd yep. love to talk to you guys if you've got any feedback or you've got some potential guests you would like us to, to interview. Please let us know. We'd yep. love to hear from you. And this this will likely be our last um I guess, serious episode of the, yeah. of the year. Last guest. Yeah, so last year. guest. So we tend to try and put out a Christmas episode, which may be a bit more lighthearted. Yeah. A uh, bit of a recap on the we year. We have and some plans for that one. <laughs> yeah. So, you, yeah, you'll hopefully get that from us before the year is out. Hopefully. Um, but, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks. And we'll be back with you soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.